Good morning. It's good to see each of you here this morning. It's a beautiful day to come together and worship our Lord. And for those of you who may be visiting with us, we have a special welcome for you. We're delighted that you have chosen to come. And we've adopted you the minute you walked in the door. You're a member of our family, and we want you to know how greatly pleased we are to have each of you with us this morning. Before his retirement, Walter Cronkite was looked upon as the most able of all the newscasters. Repeatedly, he was chosen as the one most credible, the one most believed by those who listened. It was almost as if he were the epitome of his word being his bond. At the end of every newscast, he always concluded with these words, and that's the way it is. And we believed him. That was the way that it was. One of the great sicknesses of our day is the lack of credibility on the part of those who speak. We don't know who to believe, to what extent any can be trusted who speak with authority. Because we've been disappointed so many times, it was almost too difficult to believe a few years ago when one of the major spokesmen for our government admitted that the people had been given wrong information and he called it, we gave disinformation to the people, trying to justify lies with a word that made it sound as though it were legitimate. I always believe that Whenever the president of my country made a statement, I could take it at full value. I'll never forget my disappointment when Dwight Eisenhower repeatedly said, we had no U-2s flying over Russia. And he didn't know that even while he spoke that one had been downed and was in the hand of the Russian people. And we lost face that year in Paris when Khrushchev, showed evidence that that plane we denied existed had crashed and was in their hands. Took something out of me that day that I've never fully recovered so that I never really believe anything that a spokesman for our nation says at face value. It's always with a grain of salt, and that's tragic. What we need above all else in our times is integrity that when one speaks authoritatively, he can be believed. And when we accept something authoritatively, we can stand by it. But the world today is so filled with false spokesmen, of statements of disinformation, that we don't really have solid ground on which to stand. More than anything today, we need absolutes. We can't get them from the marketplace, from the political arena. We even find at times it difficult to find in educational institutions. But there is one place where 
It is unassailable and without exception, and that is in the moral realm of God. There your absolutes lie. They can be depended upon. They never waver. We need absolutes. There are ways in which we attempt to find values to live by and certainties to build our lives upon. One of these is the word of others. We have to take people at their word and respect their integrity in believing the things that are told us. And much of what we adhere to is told by others. Not that which we discover on our own, but what we believe because others have told us. Some things we believe are things we have searched for, have researched and have come to our own individual conclusions. Those bear a little stronger integrity than simply the word of someone else. We can rely to a great extent upon that which has repeatedly proven itself in time and traditionally we believe it's true because it's been believed for so long. And much of our doctrinal beliefs rest upon that, the great traditions of the church. But even that falls short. There's only one way that we can, with total certainty, accept for truth that which we can live by. And that is what we experience. If it happened to us, then we know. One day Jesus was in the temple at Jerusalem teaching. He was increasingly becoming unpopular with the people who heard him. He even had to hide to keep from being stoned there at the temple itself. But when he left the temple with his disciples, they came upon a man who was sitting there beside the roadway begging alms. He had done that as far back as he was able to sit alone. He had been born blind, no way to earn a living. Every day his parents or someone close to him would lead him down to the temple and there was a place that he always sat. Those who came out of the temple had hearts that were more open and there would be alms dropped into his palm and it was a good place to be. And so every day he came to that one place and as he listened to the footfalls of the worshipers going into the temple and those leaving, he would extend his hand and they would drop coins and by that he was able to live. On this day he didn't expect anything to be any different. They were the same footfalls, and as it became a melody in the distance, his mind wandered to one thing or another, just keeping enough alertness to be sure that his hand was extended to grasp the coins that were dropped. As Jesus passed by the blind man sitting there, the disciples turned to Jesus. Their minds had been quickened by the questioning and the answers inside the temple, and they weren't ready to stop asking questions yet. And so just as they passed by the blind man, one of them turned to Jesus and said, 
Who was it that caused that poor man to be blind? Did he commit some sin in his mother's womb? Or did his father commit a sin? Did his mother commit a sin? And he's paying the penalty by being born blind. Jesus looked at the man sitting there, the face that was sightless, he turned to his disciples and he said, no one sinned. It was just a circumstance that the world is filled with. His blindness is not to be blamed upon his sin or anyone else's. That was the end of the discourse, but it was the opening of the doorway to a far larger experience. Jesus didn't pass him by. The blind man didn't know who it was that had paused for a moment. He was waiting for a coin to drop. He heard the conversation, but it didn't mean anything to him. He had heard many conversations as people passed by. He sensed that the man who had spoken was doing something, and those who stood by saw what it was that he was doing. He dropped down upon his knees, and there in the dust of the pathway, he spit upon the dust, and then he took his index finger and he began to mix it with the dust until it became a paste. He'd done that as a child, making mud pies as all children do. A natural thing to do, to mix it into a paste. And then he scooped it up and he walked over to where the man sat in his blindness. He spread the clay over his eyes. The man drew back in wonder. It felt good, his eyes we're tired, and the cool clay made them feel good. It was a nice gesture on the part of the stranger to make his eyes feel better. But then he heard these words, spoken not to passers-by, but to him. People rarely spoke to him. They spoke as though he had no ears, the way that we normally treat people who are not able to see or hear or fully activate themselves in what's going on. But these words were spoken to him, and he listened. He gently touched his elbow and said, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash off the clay. The man was obedient, if for no other reason, to move the clay from his eyes. There was no evidence that anything was about to take place that was out of the ordinary. But he found his way to the pool and he cupped his hands with water, threw it against his eyes, dipped another fistful, rubbed it into his eyes, and the clay fell away. And when it did, his eyelids opened and he looked. And for the first time in his life, he saw trees raised up against the blue sky. He saw the clouds drifting overhead. He saw birds Quickly, he drew his eyes about him and looked into the faces of people. These were those places from which the voices had come. He looked down at the cool water. It had felt so good over the years, and now he saw the blue water lying at his feet. He was so excited. He saw the entire world all at once, never having had a glimmer of what it was like. A miracle had happened. The natural place to go was to go back home. 
he rushed back. And neighbors who had seen him leave day after day to go down to the place to beg looked in amazement and wonder. And they said, isn't this the man who lives nearby who's blind? Well, it looks like him, but it can't possibly be he because this man can see. How could he possibly see when he was blind from birth up? And so he heard the chattering of the neighbors as they wondered who he could be. And if in reality it was their neighbor, what had happened to him that he was able to see? And then he rushed back to the place where it happened. Everybody was amazed. Among those were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They corralled him as quickly as they could, pulled him aside, and then they began to hurl the questions at him. What devious thing has been done here? Who has pretended to give you sight? It was a man who did it. I don't know who he was. Well, what did he do? He rubbed clay on my eyes and told me to go wash it off. And when I did, I was able to see. It was a man filled with sin who did such a thing because this is a Sabbath day. And one would not do that on the Sabbath day unless he were a sinner. Another said, if he were a sinner, how could he perform a miracle like this? And they began to argue among themselves and the blind man stepped away. And finally they came to decide that he wasn't blind after all, that he was perpetrating a fraud on them. And so they went to the man's parents and they said to them, is it true that he has been blind since birth? Yes, that's true. Then what happened? We don't know. When he left the house this morning, he was blind. And when he came back, he was able to see. Well, what was done to give him sight? We don't know. He's old enough to answer for himself. You go ask him. He had told them they knew, but they were frightened. They knew that if they insisted that it had been a miracle done by Christ, that they would be punished. They would even be thrown out of the synagogue and that would be a terrible thing to happen. And so they pretended of no knowledge at all. You go ask him, it happened to him, he'll be able to tell you. And the young man stood there with great courage. He would not deny what had happened because he was one who had walked in blindness and now he had received his sight. And so they came back to him again and they said, we don't believe what you told us the first time. Tell us what happened. Who was the man who did this thing and how did he do it? There was a pause. The blind man wanted to phrase his words just right. He had already told them. They wouldn't believe him. They didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted to hear words that would please them. And so he answered simply, I don't know. I don't know who he was. I don't know how he did it. This one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. That's the kind of evidence that can be broken when we experience it we know it, whether we understand how, 
we're in. Whether we even are aware of the circumstances, simply this, if we experience it, we know it. We need religious certainty in our lives today, we who are the followers of our Lord. And only with the certainty by which we can build our lives can we follow adequately the one who calls us to follow him. Part of the great weakness of the church in the world today is our uncertainties. Much of that key, which keeps us from being full-fledged followers of our Lord are our uncertainties. How important that we know. Paul knew from the moment that he had his experience on the road to Damascus, he was certain of the things that mattered and he based his life upon those certainties. I know in whom I believe, he said. And in every instance of his acting, he acted upon the knowledge that had come from his experience with Christ. What a sad story it was of John Wesley who lived so many of the years of his life in uncertainties. He wanted so badly, but he was uncertain. The great turning point in his life was that moment of certainty in which he could say, I no longer wish, I know. And out of that experience of Wesley comes the first means by which we can have certainty within ourselves. Certainty comes when God tells us. God is not deceitful. God does not give out disinformation. When God tells us, we can count on it. God isn't going to speak audibly. There were times in history in which he did, and the Bible records it, and everybody thought that it thundered. Those few privileged to know what he was really saying could hear the words, but for most it was the sound of thunder. But don't listen for God's voice when it thunders next time a storm comes. God doesn't speak to us that way. He speaks to us the way that he spoke to St. Francis of Assisi and St. Augustine and Martin Luther. He speaks to us the way that he has spoken to all who have lifted his banner high and marched courageously under his orders. John Wesley put it in the words by which it is brought about. His spirit witnessed to my spirit. That's how God speaks to us. The Quakers call it the inner light. I wish there were more of that, letting God speak and our responding. We can know without a shadow of a doubt when God tells us. We can know that it is a valid experience with God and a valid relationship with Him when we love one another. That's the way that John put it in his first letter. He said, by this men shall know that you love one another. It's impossible to love God and not love one another. 
It's one of the rearing impossibilities to love one another if you don't love God. But if you love God, you can't help but love one another. It's catching. And Jesus said, if you don't love God, then if you don't love your fellow men, then don't come pretending you love God. He knows better. Because that's the way you show your love for God. By loving one another. To love one another doesn't mean laying a hypocritical, hypocritical relationship with people that we commend them for things that are unworthy. Loving means really wanting the best for everyone and being a means to bring that about. And the greatest evidence of Christian discipleship is loving people who don't love you. There's no way that I could not love my family because they shower me with love all the time so greatly. And when someone dislikes you, makes it hard for you to have a relationship with them, if you can say sincerely in your heart, I love that person, then you can be sure that your relationship with God is in good health. A proof of our relationship with God comes from the fact that we can integrate it into the everyday activities of our lives. Everybody can be a Christian in a pew. It's the easiest thing to do. But when you carry those Christian convictions out into the workplace and make your decisions, perform your activities on the basis of what is right as God shows you is right, that's where it's tested. If it works in our social relationships with people, if we're prejudiced against people simply because they're different, we aren't carrying our convictions out into our social lives. If we adopt a lifestyle that we know that is displeasing with God, we can't counter that by going into the church and taking another attitude. It has to work out there if it's valid at all. Our everyday living has to reflect what we affirm in church on Sunday or it isn't valid. And that's the way we come to our certainties. Does it work out there and not just in here? We can be certain if we're God's partner. God needs partners badly in this world and he's waiting for everyone to stand at his side and work with him. So many ills in the world that need to be righted, so many wrongs that need to be erased. And God does it through people. The time in which he swept the worlds with miracles apart from people is past. Now he works through people and the miracles happen every day. All it takes is giving our lives in partnership, not in slavery, in partnership with him. An autobiography of one of the great saints was entitled, Marching Under Sealed Orders, and the orders came from his commander-in-chief, and his entire life was just following those orders. And Peter Marshall, when he told of his experience in Scotland before coming to America, he talked about getting his marching orders from God. 
It's a beautiful thought to think that we're not isolated out here doing our thing in a world that is hot one day and cold the next. But when we're in step with God, He's our partner and we're doing great things together. One of the most exciting concepts that we can hold about life. I'm doing it with God. We're doing it together. And the great stamp of certainty upon our spiritual life comes from growing in the spiritual graces. We grow more Christ-like every day. As a child growing up, we had revival meetings oftentimes in the little church to which I belonged. And there would be a testimonial time in the evening. And almost invariably, the testimonials would be to some event years and years before when that person had had a great experience. I've come to see that that experience fades with the enormity of experiences that come from walking on a long journey. If you go hiking to the top of the mountain, there's a camaraderie that begins with your hiking fellow as you begin. But when you've climbed those steeps, assuaged your thirst from moss, when you've plucked berries, when you've sweated and torn off your jacket, when you finally get to the top and there you stand at the summit looking out all over the world that you have conquered, that person at your side is a different person from the one with which you began the journey because you climbed it together. And that beautiful testimonial on Thursday evening of a man and a woman who had walked together for 50 years. Oh my, how more beautiful that love was on the 50th year than on the day in which they said, I do. And if our pilgrimage with God doesn't make us more beautiful and more Christ-like and more spiritual, we'd better question whether it is really authentic. For more than anything else, we need the certainties of our relationship with God. And now this. It comes from Christ. He has given us the promises. And we accept them. We can't do it alone. We can't do it upon the resources of the world. It is only when we link our lives with Him to determine from the outset the intention to be faithful to our Lord and to walk henceforth in his holy faith. You can know because God tells us every day.